0: chapter 2. I invite you to turn there. i hope you have a copy of the scriptures. If you don't have a Bible you bring there are some in the back there or maybe you have an electronic device but it's a precious thing to be able to hold God's Word in our hand and to read it and for most of us I think reading the words on the page helps as we hear them and so that's a good thing to do. In the first 10 verses of Ephesians 2 we have those Glorious words that we've been saved by grace through faith. That Christ came to us in our spiritual dead condition and he raised us up. And then I'd like to pick it up at Ephesians 2 verse 11 and read to the end of the chapter. And take verses 19 through 22 as our sermon text for today. But Ephesians 2 at verse 11, the word of the Lord. The apostle writes to these Christians in Ephesus Therefore remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world." But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is, the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace." And that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were far afar off and to those who were near, for through him we both have access by one spirit to the Father. Here's our text. Now therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints invite you to turn from God's word to the forms and prayers book once more to look at the catechism on page 222. It's actually, this is where we're up to in the catechism, though we've been out of the catechism a couple weeks, but we're up to Lord's Day 21. I I think I'd like to return to it uh, next week or in the weeks ahead, but I'd like to read question answer 54. It's found on page 222. 222 is the page number. remember the Catechism at this point is unpacking, explaining to us the language of the Apostles' Creed. And so at question 54, it asks, What do you believe concerning the holy Catholic Church? Catholic meaning universal, the holy universal church. And this is what we believe on the basis of God's word. I believe that the Son of God, through his spirit and word, out of the entire human race, from the beginning of the world to its end gathers, protects, and preserves for himself a community chosen for eternal life and united in true faith. And of this community, I am and always will be a living member. So we believe. Let's bow and ask for God's help this morning. Our Father in heaven, we come before you to pray that we might... Believe that in the preaching of the word, our Lord Jesus Christ is pleased to exercise his prophetic office. Still today, to now speak through the inspired scriptures and to save and to convert and to strengthen and to correct and to encourage his people. And we pray that Jesus Christ, our chief prophet, would be with us on this Lord's Day. That we might hear the voice of our shepherd, that we might recognize it, and that we might follow him. In his precious name we pray, Amen. Well, congregation of Christ, this stop on the tour would be quite a surprise if you were not a Christian. To have been on the tour we've been on for the past weeks, and now to arrive at where we are in Ephesians chapter 2 would would really be unbelievable. You have to picture the scene. If you could think of the Apostle Paul maybe taking, acting as a tour guide and taking a a tour group to visit the stops that, that we've considered in the past week. The Apostle Paul maybe with a time machine and traveling to show people the progression, the increasing glory of God who said he would come to dwell among his people The people who had rejected him, who had sinned against him. God's glory had withdrawn, but God was going to dwell with his people again. And so the Apostle Paul, if he could load up his time capsule and take this this group of of unbelievers who know little of the Bible to the first stop, he would would bring them as we went to the tabernacle out there in the wilderness. And it would be an amazing thing that here are people who were formerly slaves, are now brought out of Egypt, and they're dwelling in tents And suddenly, God commands that a tent be built for him. And then his glory fills that tent. And it's a sign the living God will dwell there. This tent made so beautiful with various colors. But then the next stop on the journey, um, as a time machine zipped forward, would be to Solomon's temple. And now God's people living in in a homeland, living in the land of Israel, their own land, living in houses, God commands that a temple be built, and Solomon builds a beautiful building, beautiful building. And then the glory of God comes down and fills that temple in Jerusalem. You can imagine unbelievers on this tour would be quite impressed. What a glorious thing. But then if the Apostle Paul loaded up the time machine and moved forward a, a number of centuries, even millennia, into the future... And that time machine came towards modern-day Turkey, towards that city of Ephesus. And you can maybe picture a scene as many movies begin with this panoramic view from an airplane or a helicopter or a, a drone. And, and, and it, it begins at large, and it begins to focus in and narrow in. And so as, as the, the tour approaches the city of Ephesus, they see what they know is the next stop. It's a ginormous building. It's the largest building in the Greek-speaking world. It's four times the size of the Parthenon in Athens. It's a spectacular building made of marble. And and they can see people coming from all over the world and streaming towards the site. And they all look out the window and say, well, there it is. We see it, the the progression, the, the next temple. And the Apostle Paul says, well, no, that's not it. That, that building in Ephesus, that's the temple of Artemis. That's the temple of Diana. Nobody there knows God. Nobody there has seen the glory of God. No, that's not it. But as the time machine comes closer, it goes to a house, a residence. And it goes inside and there's a little group of people. They look kind of like us. They're not all so exciting. They're rather ordinary. Some have committed crimes. Some are grandmas, grandpas. Some are young children. And the Apostle Paul says, here it is. And the unbelievers would look at the Apostle Paul and say, wait a minute. Tabernacle, glorious temple. You, you said there was progression. You said there was movement. And now this? And the Apostle Paul would say, yes, this is the temple of the living God. Brothers and sisters, when we confess a holy Catholic church, we confess it by faith. Because you can't see it with the human eye. It's only as you know what we are through the word of God that you know truly what we are. The dwelling of God by his spirit that what we have here this morning is greater than the temple of Solomon, greater than the rebuilt temple and remodeled temple of Jesus' day by Herod. The church of Jesus Christ, this is the temple of the living God. Let's look at that in Ephesians 2, verses 19 through 22, where we see that Christ, first of all, gathers a people as one through his saving work, and then secondly, that, that this gathering is actually a building that's grounded or founded upon Jesus Christ, the chief cornerstone. And then thirdly, that this building is actually a temple that is growing, yes, still growing and being built up for the dwelling place of God. Well, first of all, the church, as the New Testament temple, is the people gathered by Christ. We, we confess in Lord's Day 21 some extraordinary things. That the Son of God is the temple builder. That the Son of God is working through his spirit and word. That the Son of God is gathering a people from throughout the whole human race. And from the beginning of the world, Adam and Eve, to the end of the world, wherever that is. Christ, the Son of God, is gathering a people for himself to be this church this temple now the apostle paul was a apostle to the gentiles and it was extraordinary to him and it was really almost unbelievable to many of the jews he spoke to even christian jews it was very hard for them to comprehend that now the gentiles were on equal footing with the jews i mean we this morning just really can't Comprehend the chasm that was between Jew and Gentile in the days of the Apostle Paul. But the Jews were the one people on the face of the earth God had chosen to be his people. To them, he had made covenant, promising to be their God. They would be his people. To them, he had given his revelation, the scriptures. To them, he gave the temple, his dwelling place, and the sacrifices. To the Jews, he gave the promise of forgiveness of sins and the promise of the coming of a Messiah, king, and shepherd. And if you were not a Jew, if you did not come into Israel and become an Israelite, a Jew, then you were of a different class, and it was the class of Gentile. There's Jew, and then there's Gentile. They are the outsiders. They are the unclean dogs. They're ceremonially unclean. They can't come near to God. They're impure. The Apostle Paul says to these Gentiles in Ephesus, this city in modern-day Turkey. He says in verse 11, remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, verse 12, that at that time you were without Christ. You were aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers from the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Well, that's quite a description of what these people used to be. They were outsiders. The whole law system, as God gave it to Moses, divided Israel from everybody else, right? I mean, think of of all that God gave his people through Moses that demanded separation. You were to be holy or separated to the Lord. And so there was a great wall of dietary restrictions, right? If you're a Jew, you cannot eat all these things the Gentiles eat. They are unclean. If you're a Jew, you cannot touch all these things Gentiles touch. You can't touch your dead cow, right? If you're, if you're a Jew, you cannot marry with any other peoples on the face of the earth. You can only marry among the Israelites, the Jews. There was a great division. People of God in the Old Testament found their the center of their life in that Old Testament temple in Jerusalem that was that was ground zero, that was the heart of their existence, and everything that emanated from that said to God's people, you must be holy, you must be clean, you may not have fellowship with the world. And now the Apostle Paul comes and says something extraordinary. Verse 14, well, verse 13, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ, verse 14, for he himself is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation. I, I doubt many of you have thought recently about the Berlin Wall since it was taken down, what, 30, 35 years ago? But maybe most, maybe even the kids and the young people know about the Berlin Wall that separated. In the east and west Berlin in Germany. And there's really a, a couple walls, I think, concrete walls, and between them, the, what they call it, the, the death zone or something to that effect, the death strip. If you, if you try to cross from east to west, you'd be shot, you'd be killed. When the Apostle Paul's day, there was a, a very real wall that was found inside the temple. There was this barrier between the court of the Gentiles and the inner courts of the, of the temple, And this wall was was serious business. In fact, they have found uh, the inscription which said something to the effect that if you go beyond this point, you a Gentile, then when you're arrested, you are responsible for your own death. You're responsible for your own blood if you pass beyond here. And maybe the Apostle Paul has in mind, in the background here, that wall in his mind that separated Gentile from Jew. And now he says in verse 14 that Christ has demolished that wall. He's demolished that wall. There's no longer this barrier between, between Gentile and Jew. But now they have equal access to the courts of God. In fact, we know that when Jesus died, even the, the inner wall, that, that curtain, that was shielded the Holy of Holies, behind which was the Ark of the Covenant originally, that curtain was torn down, right? It was split open and signaling that Christ's death on the cross had, had made fellowship possible between sinners and God. And so the apostle says now in, in verse 19, Now therefore you are no longer, no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. That word stranger refers to those who were just visiting Ephesus. They come for a stay, and they, they have no rights. You know how it is if you travel abroad, depending on what country it is, but you, you know when you leave this country, you can't expect the same rights in another country. You're a foreigner. You have to have a passport to get in. Your money might not be any good there. You're a currency. You, well, if you're traveling to certain nations, you'd be fearful of even getting thrown in jail and not being able to get a fair trial. Apostle Paul says, you're not a stranger anymore. And then he uses the word foreigner, which according to scholars, this word suggests those who are resident aliens, people who were not just passing through Ephesus, but lived there. In fact, may have even lived in Ephesus for generations, but did not have citizenship or full rights. One scholar writes that most of the residents of Ephesus had this resident alien status while exceedingly few who lived in Ephesus were citizens of Ephesus or of other cities like Tarsus or Rome. Remember, the Apostle Paul was unique. He was, he was a citizen of Tarsus and of Rome. He had citizenship. But many people living in Greek cities did not have citizenship. In fact, they've discovered a, um, uh, some kind of writing from um, a century or two after the Apostle Paul which uh, speaks of a party, a festival being thrown for the 1,040 citizens of Ephesus. And by that time, the city is much larger. So in Paul's day, there's less than 1,000 people who are actually citizens of Ephesus, who have the full legal rights and privileges of citizenship. And so, when the Apostle Paul says to these Ephesians that you're not strangers, you're not even resident aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints of God, you have all the rights and privileges. He's speaking of an elite and incomparable gift. It's a stunning reality. We are citizens of God's kingdom. Not just strangers passing through. Not even resident aliens who are just glad to live here. But we have all the rights of the kingdom of God. And then he goes further. Not just not just fellow citizens of God's kingdom, but members of the household of God, part of the family. You are part of the family. It says in verse 18, for through Christ we both have access by one spirit to the Father. To the Father. That means being part of the family, you are children of God in fact in Ephesians 1 he says you've been predestined to be, to adoption as God's children so this is the reality for you little Ephesian congregation you are actually co-heirs with my eternal and beloved son you have his rights and privileges see what Christ has done See what Christ has done? He has, by his blood, died for Jew and for Gentile. Christ on the cross has died for all of the world, for all of his elect, of every nation, tribe, tongue. And he is gathering all of them to stand on equal footing at the foot of the cross as as those who are saved by his blood alone. And if you're saved by his blood, you are a son of God, a daughter of God. Now when you read this passage you have just discovered the the key to the thing our culture is consumed with today the issue of, of division. Our culture in America has long been taken up with combating racism and various divisions and now with critical race theory many have Tried now to figure out a new form of equity. But you know, the world's been divided since Adam and Eve. As soon as they became irreconciled from God, they became irreconciled with each other, right? As soon as Adam rebelled against God, the next thing he did was blame his wife. And then this couple who are, who are, who were broken from God and broken from each other had broken sons, and their firstborn son killed his brother. So, if you ask when did people start hating each other, it goes pretty far back, and it's everywhere. We see our divided culture today, our divided political system. We we see nations throughout the world divided even against each other. Russia invades Ukraine. We we see the war with Israel and Hamas. We we know there's conflict in marriages. We see the divorces. We see children and parents, we, we see employers and employees hating each other. Now, what's the solution? Has government policy healed the divide? Has, has the campaign for civil rights put everything back together? Has, have protests, have they been the answer? Has critical race theory, has it taken away all conflict and animosity among mankind? What the world cannot do, Jesus Christ does. Out of the two, Paul says, he makes one new man. Out of the two humanities or two races, he makes one race Christians. A single people who have access to God's fellowship. The world tries to restore rights, but those rights are only earthly, human rights, Jesus Christ gives us eternal rights. The right to be a child of God. And therefore it doesn't matter this morning what race you are, what ethnicity you are, it doesn't matter how educated you are, or how ignorant you are, it doesn't matter how much how much money you have, how big your business is or or how poor you are. It doesn't matter how old you are, it doesn't matter if you're male or female. All those who believe are one in Christ Jesus. He has one people he's gathered. It was never God's plan to have two people, Jew and Gentile. God chose the Jews to use the Jews to be a light to call forth the Gentiles. The Apostle Paul staggers at this. This is one of the wonders of the gospel. We, the world, the Jews thought this could never happen, Jew and Gentile together. And Paul says, you are together in Christ. Jesus, who raises the spiritual dead and takes away their sins, has, has put them together. And so Paul is going to go on. If this is the indicative of what God has done in Christ, then as so often in the latter half of Paul's epistles comes the imperative, what you should do. And the imperative that follows this indicative is found in chapter 4. I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you are called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love. Verse 3, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Memorize that first, I think, in the NIV. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Make every effort. If Christ has made you one, now live as one. If Christ has loved you, now love each other. If Christ has humbly died for you, be humble with one another. But preserve the unity that Christ has established. That's the wonderful calling that comes to Christ's people. As they recognize together that none of us deserve to be here. Brothers and sisters, we... Maybe all of us, the vast majority in a way, are, are Gentiles, right? When, in the days when the Apostle Paul is writing these words, what were your forefathers doing? I mean, they were pagans. They were idol worshipers. Some of our forefathers were savages. Committed horrific, terrorizing acts of war. Some sacrificed children. Some sacrificed other people's children. We were without God and without hope in the world. Christ has gathered us, given us the full rights of citizens, and made us children of God with full access to the Holy of Holies. What a glorious thing. Gathered as one people. And as we look to coming to the Lord's table next week, that's why the form says you can't come to the table if you're divided against your brother or sister. Because then you're denying the very thing you're trying to celebrate. The blood that reconciles us to God has reconciled us to each other. Well, there's a second thing then in our text here. Not just that we're gathered, but we are grounded now. Founded upon Jesus Christ. And that comes when the Apostle Paul says in verse 20, Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets... Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. And so the apostle turns now from a picture of citizenship and and a picture of family to now a a picture of a, a building, a building that's founded, has a foundation. And he says it's founded upon the apostles and prophets. Sometimes people wonder, why do we confess one holy Catholic and apostolic church? One holy Catholic and apostolic church language in the Nicene Creed. Well, holy means set apart. Catholic means it's a universal church. People gather from all over the world throughout all of the ages as one people. And apostolic means it's founded upon the doctrine taught by the apostles. The, the preaching of the apostles, the, the word written by the apostles is the, is, is the foundation word. These are our founding documents of the church. If you go to somewhere on the East Coast, you can find the founding documents of our country. But it's the word of the apostles. And prophets here probably means, could mean Old Testament prophets. It, It may well mean the New Testament prophets. Before the Bible was completed, there were prophets. Before God's people had the scriptures, there were prophets who spoke with direct revelation from God. And now that's all over, we have this. This is our word. This is our, this is this is how we know who Jesus Christ is. Uh, any church that abandons this word has no foundation, right? If, if we abandon this word, whether in our personal lives or our congregational life, we have no standing. We have no foundation. But the apostles and prophets were the foundation not themselves as if they hold us up, but they were the foundation in the sense that they pointed us to Jesus Christ and told us who Christ is. And Christ is that glorious foundation. God had said in Isaiah chapter 28, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone for a foundation, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. Now we, we think, you know, foundation, we think of a, I don't know, 16-inch concrete footing or something. If you go to the Midwest, you, you think of a basement. All houses have Basements. Concrete basement walls. But they have excavated from the temple wall in Jerusalem a stone that's 38 and a half feet long. Picture that. That's a stone. When we're talking cornerstone, we're not talking a stone about this big. Cornerstone was enormous. And a cornerstone had two or three jobs. For one thing, it was, it was something that bore the weight, right? It bore the weight of the structure that will follow. How is it that Christ will take millions and millions of people into the home of God? Upon what foundation will Christ present us blameless before his Father and say, these are worthy of eternal life? And the answer is, Upon his saving work that he bore the entire curse on the cross. He obeyed all the commands for us. Christ in his righteousness and his saving death is the cornerstone that supports us. And it will never fail. It will never fail. Basements in the Midwest, if they're old enough, they have cracks in them comes with the territory if you have an old house you have a crack in your basement wall water begins to seep in no cracks in christ jesus solid solid rock in fact we sing that sometimes don't we on christ the solid rock i stand all other ground is sinking sand christ is is the rock my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. That's my, my comfort. As I, as I come before God, it's not that, that I can present myself and say, God, here I am. I'm worthy of you. I'm worthy of your fellowship. No, I would be instantly blown away, consumed by God's holiness, if I was not standing firmly upon this cornerstone, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who bore the curse for me. But the cornerstone also tied together the other stones. Cornerstone boys and girls stood at the corner of a building where two walls came together. And that stone bound those two walls together. Christ binds us together. Would you ever know each other if you weren't Christians? Would you ever love each other if Christ did not die on the cross? Think of some of the things that you have done for a fellow believer Imagine if if you were not in Christ Jesus. Would you ever have any desire to serve that person in that way? Imagine some of the things you've forgiven. That you have forgiven someone. They've done to you. If you were not in Christ, would you have the power to forgive? Jesus Christ binds us together. But a third feature of a cornerstone is this. That that the cornerstone actually determines the shape of the entire building. It's off of that cornerstone that that the perpendicular walls are set. They are aligned. They are given shape based on the shape of that cornerstone. And so the cornerstone determines everything. I remember when I was first in the ministry, one of the the old-timers wanted to explain to me as I was lost and Talking about the streets of Chicago, he explained to me how it all goes. It's very simple, he says, it's a giant grid. All the streets coming out of Chicago all the way down to us are on a giant grid, and there's a point in Chicago, the intersection of Madison and State, which is zero. The center of that intersection is zero, and every street in every direction coming off is numbered one to whatever in correspondence to that center place. And so, if you're a driver in Chicago, you know when you hear a certain street number, 55th Street or 117th, you know how far you are from downtown, center point. You know immediately. Eight blocks and a mile. Divided by eight, how many miles away from? You can figure it all out. Well, Jesus Christ is the cornerstone. The whole structure of the church is being built up, its shape is being determined by Jesus Christ. He gives us our meaning, he, he gives us our direction, and it, and it means that none of us are what we were once before. When you're a stone quarried from some mountain, and now you're brought to be built as part of this temple, and you're fitted to, to come off of that cornerstone, you are no longer what you once were, and your identity is completely changed. I remember back at, in Illinois when I was reading with the elders a book, as there was so much about homosexuality being spoken of, and, and we read a book in which the Christian author, as I recall, was, was promoting the language of, of calling himself a gay Christian. A gay Christian. And we looked at each other. Are there gay Christians? Are there thieving Christians? Are there pedophile Christians? Are there adulterer Christians? No. There are Christians who have sinned. And there are Christians who wrestle against particular sins that they have a propensity towards. But their sin is not their defining characteristic. They are in Christ Jesus, a new creation. They may struggle against homosexual desires, but they are not a gay Christian. They are a Christian who struggles against sin. When you come to Christ, you have no longer your old identity. You're not part of that mountain over there anymore. You now are formed according to this cornerstone, a new creation. Sometimes that's painful. Sinclair Ferguson, in his little commentary, writes these words. I thought they were a bit humorous. He says, imagine those temple stones had voices. Imagine those temple stones had voices as the masons worked on them, as the haulage teams moved them into place, as master craftsmen shaped them to fit perfectly with each other. What cries of pain? What refusal of design, what complaint about the shape or size of neighboring stones might we hear? So it is in the church Christ builds from living stones sinners who are resistant material, difficult to shape, reluctant to fit with other living stones, yet Christ continues to build. Is not the case? Peter says we are living stones being fitted together and might we not say sometimes, God, I, why do I have to change? Make her change. Why do I have to be shaped to fit with him? Make him fit with me. And God says, no. I'm going to fit each one of you by my word and spirit. And by all the trials I send you, and by all the sufferings of this life, I'm chiseling you, I'm shaping you. I know how it takes a special kind of craftsman to know, to know just how to lay that chisel so that it does good and not harm. And that temple builder is the Lord Jesus Christ and his Holy Spirit who is fitting us together that we align with the cornerstone might rise up as a beautiful temple to our God. And that's the final point that the household... That then in Paul's message here becomes a building. Now in Paul's message, the building, it's a temple. It's a temple. Verse 21 and 22, in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. <clears throat> Two temples were dominant. Every Jew thought of the temple in Jerusalem. I mean, you couldn't be a Jew without thinking about the Old Testament temple one well, and the temple that in Jesus' day, and the Apostles' day, until A.D. 70 when the Romans destroy it. The temple was everything. The temple that had been built after captivity had been remodeled and expanded by Herod. It was a glorious sight. Remember, the disciples sit up on the hill and they say to Jesus, Jesus, do you see all, do you see this temple? Wow! And then he says, not a stone's going to be left upon another. But the, the disciples were mesmerized by it. It was a glorious structure. And then there were the Ephesians. They were quite a ways from Jerusalem, but but they were worshiping in the shadow of the temple of Artemis or the temple of Diana. Remember uh, in the book of Acts when there's that ride in Ephesus? They're so mad at Paul who says there's no gods made by human hands and, and they want to kill him. And they're, they're gathered there at the, at the stadium and they're all shouting, great is Diana of Ephesus. Right? There's an uproar. The the Temple of Artemis or the Temple of Diana was regarded as one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, was an enormous building for that day, and people came from all over the world to see it, even to worship there. They they came as tourists. In fact, as you see in the book of Acts, a huge part of the economy of Ephesus was based upon this Temple of Artemis, and they were selling all their, their little statues and stuff for people to buy as souvenirs and so forth. This temple was everything to the city. And now the Apostle Paul is saying to these little Christians in some small assembly, whatever their numbers were. You are the temple of God. You are the temple of God. God is pleased to dwell among you. He is your life. He's your protection. You are dear to Him. In Psalm 132, we read, For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for His dwelling. This is my resting place forever and ever. Here I will sit and throne forever, for I have desired it. How, how joyful that was to sing as an Old Testament Jew. That God's chosen Zion. God has chosen Jerusalem. God will live here. He has desired it. But now the Apostle Paul says that's fulfilled now in Christ Jesus. That it's not the building you worship in. We have to be clear about that to our children. This building is not the church. Now we call it the church. We're going to church. This building is not the church. The church is the body of Christ. And the body of Christ is the temple of God. God dwells in his people by his Spirit. God has come closer. If you were on that tour with the Apostle Paul and his time machine, would you say, Boy, I, you know, that's real nice, those people in Ephesus. I think I prefer the temple. I'll even take the tabernacle. I just, I just want something I can touch and see. No, God says, we are moving forward. Tabernacle, temple, Jesus Christ, the tabernacle, God with us. And now all those united to Jesus Christ, the dwelling place of God. Now you say, you know, what kind of a temple is this for God? I mean, I know about my sin and I'm a mess. And then what about all these people's sins? And the apostle says, you know, it's. It's still being built. It's growing into a holy temple. It's being built up together. Tonight we want to look at the book of Revelation and get a glimpse of the the final structure. But what we have right now upon earth is the building in progress. And lots of you know that building sites are often not a pretty scene. We got a bunch of mud in our parking lot this morning, but... If somebody puts on an addition or one day we put on an addition, that's what you'll see, mud, right? And then building supplies stacked around and then maybe some chain link fences and then maybe scaffolding and maybe some plastic around that during the winter time. Maybe you've gone to see some, some monumental building somewhere and you're so looking forward to it. And you get there and you can't see the thing, it's covered in scaffolding. There's a beauty beneath there, a beauty that's being restored, but right now it doesn't look like much. The Lord tells us, don't let your eyes deceive you. Don't evaluate based on your human eyes. Jesus Christ, the builder of the temple, is telling you, this is the dwelling place of God by his spirit. And if we recognize that, then we can't possibly ever wish for a churchless Christianity. How is it possible that in America there are so many people who want to have Christ and don't want to have his church? They want a relationship with Jesus, but they don't need relationship with his people. And Jesus is making very plain here, you can't love me if you won't love my people. But you can't have my spirit if you won't be part of the spirit indwelt temple. The people Christ is assembling, Jew and Gentile, male and female, young and old, black and white, are the sinners redeemed by the blood of Christ, indwelt by his spirit, to be the dwelling of God. And, people of God, we have more glory in this little assembly this morning. Than Solomon's temple ever saw. Amen. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your holy word and for helping us to understand the incomprehensible privileges and joys that you've bestowed upon us in Christ. Open our eyes to the wonders, O oh Lord. Help us to labor. May the temple be built up as we engage evangelism missions. May the temple be built up as we labor at sanctification and holiness. May the temple be built up as we love each other and embrace one another. In the name of the Lord Jesus, O God, dwell among us, we pray. Forgive us all our sins. Amen.